Okay. Um, good day to everyone out there in our film roundtable land. Um, I have a very special guest with me today, a new and dear friend, cinematographer Larry Fong. Um, and uh, Larry, hello, first of all. Hey, how's it going? How are you? Good to see you as well. Uh, you know, full disclosure, everyone should know Larry and I are currently working on a project together. So that's how we got to uh, become, you know, good friends within the last several months. As people know, within this podcast, I often have on a lot of guests who are, uh, you know, cinematographer friends of mine. Um, and I consider Larry to be in that stable now. He's, uh, you know, someone who I've just met, but we've become fast and furious friends on this new project that we are on together. And I do want to say uh, for all those, because by the time this comes out within the next uh, week or so, people will know that Larry, you do have a movie that is now coming out on Amazon currently, correct? Yeah, it just came out, I guess, two days ago. It's called The Tomorrow War, uh, starring Chris Pratt, Amazon Prime Video. If you're an Amazon Prime member, you can see it for free. Well, let's see. There you go. That, 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 there's, there, there, there's our plug of the moment. So for those of you who haven't, please, you know, check out that movie to see some of Larry's most recent work. Um, and, uh, you know, so first and foremost, I think it's important. We always talk about on the podcast, or I like to start the conversation about, uh, because we do have a lot of young and aspiring filmmakers who always kind of are always like, you know, have this, wow, how do I get to where such a person is? How does a career grow into a path? And, you know, the thing that's always interesting with, with, with young people getting into the business is, you know, everybody wants to take that giant step so quickly and they don't realize that all of us collectively have taken baby steps along the way to get to where we are now. And a lot of that, I always feel, has to do with kind of some of, you know, the relationships and the backstories that we all have as we start uh, beginning. And the one thing that I want to start talking this about is because people who will know your work know that, you know, you've been a frequent collaborator with J.J. Abrams and also with Zack Snyder. Um, so I think it would just be great if you started, if you touched on or explained to us, you know, how those burgeoning relationships began for you in this business. Yeah, I, I think that is true because when you're a young person, you know, you like movies. And for me, I was very nerdy and I liked the monster movies and all this. And, you know, I made little super eight movies when I was a kid with my friends, but you don't really think, you know, how do I get a job in doing that? There's no way to know. Um, really, there's no steps that anyone can take. Of course, I mean, I lived in Southern California, but I didn't know anyone in the film business. You know, I lived in the suburbs, so it wasn't like I was hanging out on the lot or knew <laughs> people were fathers or directors or actors or anything with one exception, but we'll get into that later. Um, but I just really loved making my, my stupid little movies. And then I thought, you know, when the question came up, are you going to go to college? And I thought, yeah, I'll go to UCLA. It's not too far away. A lot of my friends are going and maybe I'll end up in film school there one day. Cause I knew they had a film school. Um, so I went to UCLA and I did not get into film school. So I had to pursue other things and, and then it kind of made me think, yeah, I knew it was a kind of a stupid dream. It's not really going to happen. So I gave up on that dream. Um, but roundabout, I, I started getting back into photography and I got a job that used photography. And then I decided I wanted to go back to school and go to photo school. And when I did, I went to Art Center College of Design in Pasadena. 
and um, I learned a lot about photography, but they, you know, had a film department. And when money ran out and I had to get a scholarship and I could not get a photo scholarship, I realized that, you know, I was getting a good response from the, the films that I was making because you have to make, it's interdisciplinary. So people seem to think like the films I, I was making in Super 8. So I changed my major and tried to get a scholarship um, in the film department and I got accepted and I got a, a double scholarship. And that's how I was able to finish my art education in the film department. And when I started to learn about filmmaking, once again, the dream that I gave up long ago <laughs> was revived. And I had a great time because now it's that thing. Sometimes people go to school and they don't really enjoy what they want to do. But now finally, I was going to film school, loving what I wanted to learn and just poured everything into it. And some of my friends there, Zach Snyder and Tarsem, who I met there at that time, were also very passionate and really wanted to um, pull out all the stops creative, creatively. And so we all collaborated together on different things. Um, and that takes me up to the film part, the film school part of the story. Well, that's great. So, I mean, and that is, that's always one of those things that, you know, we always talk about like, you know, when, when you're young, surrounding yourself with people who have not only just the mindset, but the energy that you have and the path that you want to lay down. And, you know, these, 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 these cores get formed and then you kind of elevate together. So, you know, it seems like that's exactly a position that you found yourself in, especially with Zach and Tarson. Yeah. Yeah. And then did you yeah. start doing commercials then at that point? Or, you know, what, you know, what was, what was your first foray with them? Well, none of us were going to get into a, a, you know, feature film deal right away. And that, that wasn't really the emphasis at Art Center anyway. Anyway, it was commercial art. So you were encouraged to shoot commercials that you could show on, you know, cheap student commercials. But you tried to do the best you could. So at least you had something to show as a reel. And they also encouraged you to do music videos. So we had these fake music, well, I guess the real music videos, but self-finance music videos and commercials or short films that we then had a reel to immediately shop upon graduation, which we all did. And unbelievably, we all started working fairly soon. Uh, music videos, for sure. At that time, that was 92, maybe. And it's kind of the heyday, golden age of music videos, where they wanted more and more. They're very experimental. Record labels didn't know anything about it, so they let you do whatever you want. And then so there's a lot of creativity uh, going around then as well. So it was a lot of fun. So that was a lot of people had their other DPs too, and directors got their foot in the door that way. That's interesting. And, and you know, the thing is, you know, obviously, as the times have changed, as you said, because that's also, you know, around the time that I started out, people know my backstory in music videos as well. Like that was a way of quote unquote film school for so many of us back then. And given yeah. the tools and, um, and, and, and the toys, especially to kind of experiment. And one thing, you know, I talk about is it has become easier for young filmmakers because, you know, as we all know, you can literally shoot very high quality work on something like this, which didn't exist, you know, back in, back in the time when you were starting out. So I'm assuming when you were first getting out the door, everything was film centric, right? You're shooting everything in the early nineties on film as a medium, is that correct? Yeah, 16 millimeters, sometimes 35. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I feel like everything was a super equipment centric back then. You know, it was a, if you didn't have access for sure, you couldn't be a filmmaker. It, 
we are, you bring up a good point. We're always, whenever anyone I know is talking to young filmmakers, they're saying, just go out and make something with your iPhone or something. And a lot of them say, can I use a real camera? You know, it's like a compromise. And the thing is you want to get your, your, your feet wet. Even if it's an iPhone, you're still composing shots, telling stories, lighting to a certain degree, camera motion, very easy, you know, and it's kind of like a painter saying, oh, I don't want to use pencils. I'm going to wait until I'm 30 and use real paints. No, you have to get your foot in the door and start using and playing with the tools that you have so you can start speaking the language. So I think, yeah, anyone who's interested in who's young should start doing something, anything right away. But we should, anyway, we shot on 16. There was the video thing was just kind of happening. Um, we're lucky enough where if there was a budget, like when I did Losing My Religion with Tarsem, they, they agreed to let us shoot in 35 millimeter, which was, super cool you know because it did give a, a more textured mature feel i thought um but of course then if you move on the commercials everything was shot in 35. and do you see and don't forget four by three back then oh yeah oh yeah oh yeah i mean square yeah. format yeah i mean so you know i remember you know in you know in the 90s when i was started doing music videos with you know Hype Williams, and he was getting into the letterbox, extreme letterbox format. And it was like, and then he created something called the milk box, where he put elements on the top and the bottom so that, it, you know, it was just like, you know, ultimate experimentation with in terms of how to use the format and, and, and cheat things um, to get the most visuals in the shortest amount of time. I mean, that's part of what we're talking about in terms of, you know, the, the amount of experimentation that was going on back then in, in the music video field, right? That was really such a and as you said because the adults weren't watching right they were just like yeah it's a marketing thing shoot the video for whatever then all of a sudden you know these you know it, it allowed creative people to really flex their muscles you know yeah you know so that was that, that that's an amazing place for you to have been at, in 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 the nascent stages of because obviously it, it lent itself a lot to how you look at things visually yeah you had all the toys you can do anything yeah. You know, experimenting with, you know, stopping, starting the camera, light leaks, baking film, shooting things out of focus all the time. <laughs> you know, you get to bend all the rules. You know, we do that to a certain degree even today, right? I mean, playing with focus. Yeah, we try that. Simple. Baking film was something I remember experimenting <laughs> with Harris Savitas on a certain thing. Yeah. And people and, and 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 Miramax at the time being like, "What are you guys crazy? You're not gonna bake yeah. in a movie." <laughs> take the film out in the parking lot and stomp on it, you know. Like <laughs> now you have the thing on your iPhone that makes it look vintage. It's hilarious, though. Yeah, yeah, it, it's so true because you know there is an interesting thing because I do remember, you know, you, you know, we we both have a mutual acquaintance, as you know, director I work with all the time, James Gray, and he would always say how you know, the film stock got so indestructible in by the 90s, right, that the only way to really achieve the look from the 70s was to, you know, get your hands on the equipment, which didn't exist in the US anymore, that had all been shipped off to Asia for developing and processing film, right? It was almost like we couldn't even, filmmakers who wanted to step back and achieve that look were kind of hamstrung. You had to do these weird things in order to you know, try and get a film stock that was not as resilient as they were so that you could kind of create a look that, you know, that, that, that happened in movies from the seventies. Right. So did you find yourself experimenting with that? Yeah. I mean, so much experimentation. I remember that, um, in art center, I, I was, we did a lot of work with four by five cameras. Um, 
and I was doing a lot like everyone we were doing that you know where you use the tilt and the shift that was invented to keep things in focus if you're doing product photography or whatever but of course it's fun when you do it backwards because you can do portrait photography and make edges out of go out of focus right top and bottom um and um when I started doing music videos I wanted to do that on um on the film camera so I went around to different camera houses and I, and I showed them I brought my port my phone and go can we do a thing change the lens plane to do that and they just all thought I was crazy so I tried to do it myself I couldn't do it but then weirdly like a year later these film these lenses come out <laughs> called remember those swing and tilt lenses yeah, swing and tilt lenses yeah I really made those and I'm like oh huh, that's interesting I wonder where they got that idea <laughs> so people it's funny like I'm not saying they invented them or the only one that's done that but it is funny when years later people come up and try to explain the concept to you and you know or you're doing commercial and they're saying hey can you do this thing like where you turn the camera on and off it makes these flash framey things like I did that in my last commercial can you try that and I go oh that thing we're doing 10 years ago <laughs> yeah uh, sure we can do that of course you can't do that anymore you have to fake it no yeah yeah I mean that is the, that 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 you know and what what was the first do you remember the, the first purely digital project that you worked on oh it was a commercial for sure yeah it was probably, it was probably a tv commercial and I can't remember which camera but I think I do remember using the the Genesis the Panavision version for a little bit I never used Grass Valley or the Viper um use a red a little bit when it came out and that was a disaster um but when the Alexa came out I think that's what changed everything yeah I mean Aries been making cameras for 100 years right so they knew they knew what camera people needed and still do yeah and it, I mean and you're absolutely right I mean as far as I can recall too the Alexa being the game changer people were like oh yeah this is going to be the next thing going to be the next thing and it wasn't until the Alexa where people were like okay now I get it now this can be how you know we transition now this can be how you know mm -hmm. we we take that next evolutionary step from film and and by no means is it going to be an idea where you say that you know it it it, it, it kills off film because one of the things I've noticed and realized is, especially with a lot of young DPs coming up, is a resurgence in shooting Super 16, a resurgence in shooting with film, like almost as if going back into analog to, as you said, creatively find their voice, right? Yeah, isn't that funny though? Because the uh, it's like fashion, right? Things change people in the opposite when anamorphic was kind of dying out right when, when digital came in and then when digital came out and was starting to become cleaner people were saying hey how can we make it go the other way let's use cracker lenses and then i feel those are good responses but in some way i feel like we're all kind of chasing our tails on what what the pinnacle can be what the real dream is you know what's the sharpest thing or what is most resolution and then i, I don't know if those are the important questions we should be asking as far as cameras too you know I, I you know reds I mentioned red but obviously the red is a much more amazing product now but also all the other makers right from Sony and and even DSLRs if you that's all you have to make a movie or a commercial people do that all the time you know the movie we're doing now we're using prosumer cameras for certain shots yeah so um yeah but, but it's funny too going back to film like remember when everyone said now we're doing digital because that's 
the most economical way. Remember all studios were saying that? That's right. That's right. Also, that's right. It's super cheap. It doesn't cost anything. Yeah. So, Again, all, exactly. all, it, all it costs is massive semi warehouse of storage data because, you know, that's the one thing that I think you and I can agree upon is that um, the new, the, you know, the new generation of filmmaking, it, it's hard to, what we always knew is the idea of action and cut, right? So everyone knows cut is a really strong word. Cut means, okay, that shot's over. Okay, now let's all regroup. Let's talk about the next thing. But I've found myself, and I'm sure you have too, in these environments where the camera's just rolling all the time. And so therefore, the power of cut is lost, right? In terms of how we all as filmmakers, our muscles like contract and then loosen, right? So, and I think that's part of it too, is because you have this, and then, and then all of a sudden you, you end the day with terabytes and terabytes of information that all has to go somewhere. And a team of people has to find just the 24 seconds or 30 seconds that are the most important in the whole like catalog of the file, right? So yeah. that doesn't make it any cheaper, does it? Yeah, I mean, I'm not there watching the dailies and actually nobody is, I have a feeling. <laughs> I think the studio is not watching the 50 hours of dailies. The directors aren't, the editor isn't, the loader isn't. I'm not sure, but I think it's the assistant editor that has the log 50 hours of the stuff that no one's ever gonna watch. It's almost like you should be, if you were going to be that person then, and allow it, I think then the studio and the director should be forced to watch the 50 hours of <laughs> kidding. No, well, you're right. I mean, <laughs> you know, I mean, hopefully it's a test, like, you know, even, you know, with, with the younger generation directors that you and I are working with now is that I often use the word cut and I'm not afraid to use it because it's like, let's not just keep rolling here guys, you know? And, but there's other environments where it's just like, that just happens, you know? And yeah, there are and, exceptions. Yeah, yeah, and it, it and it is very interesting, and and that is clearly from the birth of digital, because those of us that come from you know learning the craft in the film world, you know film, you know that sound of is a very is very expensive, and if it just keeps going and going for no reason, you know someone's going to say, why are you still rolling camera? Yeah, we're supposed to capture the magic and create the magic, and then here we are capturing the magic. So like, it's not all magic. Like when you discussing or resetting the shot in 20 extras and you're still rolling i'm not sure what magic you're missing other than behind the scenes right, back to people but um you know not everyone agrees with that but i will say that you know if you know if sometimes there's adjustments to be made right in between takes hopefully you know the dp isn't tweaking constantly but you see something because of that and it's nice to adjust the light and it's nice for the boom guy to rest his arms who's dying and is also making me to go in because the person's starting to melt. Now the hair's out of place. Now the, you know, that the wardrobe, you know, they just, those last looks aren't really last looks, are they? If you do that and then shoot for 20 minutes. Yeah. So that everything's falling apart slowly. And if that's when you got that perfect take somehow magically, but everyone, everything else looks not so great. I'm not sure. Yeah. Pay off. The valid that's just me. If I was a director, I'm sure it would all change. <laughs> I have a feeling you'd still like to, you know, hold, hold some respect for the old values. I'm sure of that. Um, I'd like to. Yeah. And then and the other thing, you know, the, the, and so the idea, one of the questions I wanted to talk to you about, one of the things is, and that we always try and talk about on, on, on this show is the idea of story and the relevance of story in terms of how you attach that to visually, you know, project to project, how you think of story and how the story might change how you visually think of how you're going to approach a movie. 
that's something I'm constantly learning because since I came with the photo background, when I was doing my early work, I was always the prettiest picture, you know, best light, blah, blah, blah. So, and I was not a good writer or, or a director, which is why, you know, I probably didn't get into UCLA or, you know, when I was in film school, I decided directing was not for me because I couldn't, you know, I got on set and I go, huh, I don't know the story I want to tell. I don't know how to talk to actors and I don't think I can, but my visuals were there. So that's been actually a, a lifelong thing for me to really know how to break down a script or analyze things and figure out the looks for different scenes. But I think as I mature, those things come instinctually. I'm able to break down things and get ideas and, and you know, look into characters and get ideas of, of how it should look. And, and also, this is a funny concept where I talked about just now about pretty pictures. So I've also really learned how when not to make a pretty picture, which is weird, right? When you do the videos and the commercials, they're famous to be perfect. So it's an odd concept and not everyone will agree with me, but sometimes I have to think, okay, when am I going to make these parts of the movies are going to be the most beautiful and these movies I'm going to hold back on purpose to let the other scenes shine more. Weird, right? No, it's <laughs> Like everything else, right? It needs, everything needs like the peaks and valleys to gain momentum, right? So it's like, if everything always looks the same as an audience member watching a movie for 90 minutes, you don't feel subtle shifts in terms of either character emotion or anything like that. So what you're talking about is an important thing, right? It's how do the visuals go in tandem with the point of view of character, right? So like, so to help effectively build a better story, right? because that's yep. always important and something that I always like to talk about in terms of the team aspect of filmmaking and what people like you and I who are not directors, but what we bring to the directors is the idea how to help cultivate story by other means, right? By the visual or by participation of other crew members, however it works. And I think that's exactly what you're saying. It's like, it's not, you know, because yeah, you don't always want it to be about beautiful imagery because then you know, when you really want something to be striking and beautiful, it has no base level to rise from. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, maybe beautiful is the wrong word because I, I don't mean make the image look crappy, but self-conscious, more naturalistic, more found, you know, like we're talking about, you know, the other day about the sequence is going to be more disciplined on dollies and slow moves, the sequence is more handle or long lenses or the motions more frenetic those kind of things, not just lighting of how scenes are going to differentiate. Yeah, the, vi yeah. the visual language of, I mean, because that's, that's the one thing, you know, that's always interesting when we talk to young filmmakers, right? You have, if you have a script that's, you know, 97 scenes, what is the visual language that takes you from one to the other to the other so that there is a sense of undulation? right, that, that helps move the story forward, you know? And it's, it's, a, it's a subtle thing that we try and do as filmmakers, but I think it's something very important that the audience reacts to, right? W without them even realizing it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and the structure or making it like, whether you want to call it a symphony or a, or a meal, you know, I like to use the food analogy a lot, but you know, a lot of meals you start with getting into it with an appetizer or a salad or whatever and then different food profiles go and you might need a palate cleanser you know or you might need to rest and you know in the pacing and the flavors 
you know, the bold, crazy flavors might be left for the end, you know, and there's sorbet, dessert, yeah. all that, you know, so, so you don't like as the stupid meal analogy, you don't have one a meal is just one note, one flavor, one speed, one spice, right? And um, that's when you have, you know, when you have a banquet, you have all the different things that kind of try to use that analogy for for when is what's going to happen and happen and the, the pacing and the ups and downs and all that. So, um, yeah. So you're asking about the, you know, how do we tell, tell that story? Um, the thing though is when, when I go, you know, a lot of people have a lot of prep and do a lot of lookbooks at the DPs when they're going to a movie, but I like to listen more. So when I meet directors, I just want them to talk. I force them. I just ask the most annoying questions constantly so that they'll talk so I can get what they're thinking because their movie, right? I'm not going to hijack and have my secret idea, book of ideas that I'm going to slip in there when I can for my own purposes. You know, if they're all ideas are all slightly conflict mine, they still win, right? Because they're the directors. So I have to get in their heads as early as possible. And I just ask tons of questions to see what they're thinking and meet with them as much as possible on this movie thank you for making all the meetings happen because sometimes on the this is interesting some people may not know this but the bigger a movie is like on the 150 200 million dollar movies or more directors have less and less time for you because there's so many things happening with the actors and dramas and things happening and changes and they have so much going on that yeah the bigger the movies i I find like can we meet sometime no too busy you know um and you think about back in your film school that like you think about having coffee, discussing great films and making all that happen. The bigger the movie, the less that happens. And so I've enjoyed this movie because you're making it happen, making us meet. And um, I've enjoyed the collaboration. It's been great. Yeah, good. And that is an interesting thing to say. People don't realize they think that, oh, you get on these big movies and you have the world is your oyster and you have the time and you have this, you can do whatever you want. But you're absolutely right. The bigger the movie, the more the more layers become be, become created, right? Between the creative entities, that it becomes harder to connect, you know, because there's just so much involved in the decision making process on the director level that it becomes so much harder to spend time with their cinematographers. You're saying to like really pin down ideas and thoughts. I mean, and and that is just the sad truth about you know these huge tent poles that are being made and how they're you know it. it it, it, it's harder to the, for the creative people to connect the dots on a movie like that versus like a $30 million movie where it's like, you know, Hey, let's get together and talk about, you know, how we want to attack this thing. Um, that's, that's an amazing point. And, and with that in mind, I am curious, you know, particularly we're talking about, you know, Zach, who so many people know his work and that the, the, he's known for such a visual style. So, you know, and, and it's something that he's carried through. So it must've been something early on with the two of you that, you know, it kind of, that seed was planted and grew. And you've, I, I assume you guys have gotten to a level where, you know, you always know that there's going to be some type of visual aesthetic that's going to carry through from one movie to the next. How does that work for you two? Yeah, it's true because the, we, we, we were really, really friends in, in art school, in film school. And, um, we kind of had similar aesthetics. I mean, no one has the exact same, but we kind of got each other. So when we did commercials and music videos, it got over the years and we did so many projects together that you could, we didn't have to meet as much 
because he could use three or four words to describe the sequence and instantly I knew what he wanted. We didn't have to talk about what equipment or whatever had to do it because I I knew. And um, and on on set, there's so you were there. It's scary how little discussion there was about lighting and movement because <laughs> we just we just we just knew, you know. Or he he would he usually gets the lens and kind of blocks the scene, so we kind of get it, but. Very seldom they say, you know, make this darker, change this color, light from the other direction, because I knew a style and their styles were similar. Um, but but also he at the from the beginning, he was very detailed about a storyboard. So 300, starting with 300, he storyboarded you know the entire movie. People say, you know, it's just like the comic book. No, it's not. No, it's not. Hardly any of it was. There's a couple of key frames that we uh, chose from the book that we have to duplicate that because people remember that, like six, seven, eight, nine, ten shots that are almost exactly. But the the rest, I mean, the whole thing about comic book movies, by the way, when they say it's just like the comic book, if you look at a comic book, it's not shot like a movie. Right. It'd be actually really boring because once you have a cool master, then can you imagine twenty pages of just overs? It's the same one keeps coming back and be hilarious. They don't do that. They go vertical this way. They break the wall, do all kinds of screen direction, nothing. They don't care about that. It, but that's what's amazing about comic books and graphic novels because they go beyond. In a way, filmmaking kind of boring, isn't it? It's kind of like people walk in the room, make sure you see what they do, make sure you understand what they say, and they leave. <laughs> that's, that's, right. that's, that's sad. Yeah. Compared to a comic book. Yeah, but 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 my point was that after a while, you know, Zach couldn't storyboard every frame of every movie because now things are getting big and out of control. But obviously, the the important scenes are, and his stunt team that he works very closely, you know, they do their on his notes do their own videos, you know, stunt viz, which many people do of the fight sequences, and he reviews those and over and over until they're perfect because he Zach almost lives the, his movies are almost for the fight sequences he loves that stuff he doesn't have second unit shoot it usually so once all the stunt visits are perfect you know it's all laid out we kind of reshoot them but do them hopefully a little nicer make them fancier but um speaking of stunt visit and previs the bigger movie gets you know there's tends to be a lot of visual effects and then there's the previs and the storyboards that's interesting, right? Because when you get into a movie, those people might have been working on the sequence for a year already. And then when it's done, um, even though I shoot it, I had very little to do with the conception of that scene. The directors do because they're working with them. But it's weird when I show up on the set and I've never even seen the set, then the whole thing has been figured out already. I'm not hurt, but it's weird that in a normal world, if there wasn't so much VFX and stunts, then I would be helping find the the shots on that day or during a scout. So that part's left out. But I think that's the way it is, right? If there's a giant climactic superhero battle, you're not gonna figure it out on the morning of. No, I mean, and you're right. And it and it, it does, it takes a certain type of person. You're absolutely right to to be able to extract their ego from that process, knowing that you know you're coming in and it's like this, you know, the baby's already been given birth to, and you're just trying to make sure that you know it doesn't walk and hurt itself. You know, it's like, you know. <laughs> You know, here we are. It's like, you know, the, the stunt teams figured out the, the, the vis effects guys are going to do this, that, and the other. And then, you know, they hand it over to you and say, okay, now just make this look great. Yeah. <laughs> which, you know, which, which has its own pressures. Um, but, you know, that does, 
talking about Zach and, and 300, there was such, in certain ways, a, a, a specific and groundbreaking visual style, right? Does, was that something like, did the, the money entities or the studio, was there apprehension at first about what wanted to be done and the look that wanted to be achieved? Or did, you know, everybody at the top level buy in like, okay, we're going to go for this. It's going to be this type of visual thing that, you know, no one's <laughs> seen before. Like, what, 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 was, what was the backstory on that? That's a good question. <laughs> um, before I was part of the movie, Zach, at the tail end, I think of a commercial had some time or money or stage space. So he did kind of a test shot, test, not film, test shot, actually. I think it was a Steadicam shot. And it was a wonder of these guys battling and it was all in green screen. And he did from that speed ramping thing to the overly stylized grading of it to the top light to the um, weird, yeah, the weird grading and uh and the cg blood so it's kind of this i think a minute long weird wonder that kind of got the idea and i think that was the pitch that got him it but but evolved a lot since that one shot um even during the prep of the film we weren't exactly sure of the look but we knew we wanted something well he wanted to do something that had never been seen before you get that a lot <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wishful thinking. We're doing something that's never been done before, kid. Yeah. But he said, you know, when I read the script, by the way, I thought there's a whole lot of killing. And I'm like, I'm not sure if I'm into this. But he said, you know, Larry, this is not about, you know, they've had a sword and sandals film. They just did Alexander or whatever. You know, imagine that, but imagine it with the Matrix. I, you're crazy. <laughs> He said, this is only about the look of it. For you, you should only think about how to make this the coolest thing ever. And that's what that's what a DP wants to hear, right? Yeah. So um, we did content tests with, with film cameras, but also still cameras going into Photoshop, going into Telecine, which is what it was called back then, <laughs> for grading, making it look crazy. And we did some tests where we could like, blew out the highlights of stuff and we, people were liking it. And I, but I was like, Zach, this looks like everyone does this on music videos, like this extreme look. It looks like electronic or it looks like it's done in the editing suite. You know, we should try to go further. So they had, they hired all kinds of people for the look of it. Well, um, the graphic novel, obviously, Frank Miller was watercolor. If anyone doesn't know that, it was an amazing, beautiful kind of thing. So, I was thinking, what's the watercolor way to do it, you know? And it became more saturated, more like sepia-like. But the real breakthrough was when more than just the grading tools, we had the VFX people take the elements and go deep, 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 deep in the VFX world. Photoshop, Quake, all this stuff that is, is we came up with this kind of secret recipe. It was like Kentucky Fried Chicken with the, the rest or coca-cola the recipes locked up in a safe somewhere actually i have the document somewhere but it's <laughs> these these hundred steps or whatever to get that image you can't just go i put a filter or push this button or more contrast you couldn't do that this, the, the things they were doing even i didn't understand but anyway that's why you've seen parodies probably people trying to do it and they just kind of took the screws and the grading and just looked like extreme grading but we did we did so much more of that interesting that, that's um, really interesting that's really interesting so you literally you had like an r d process to try and figure out literally how to 
create, you know, call it a keyframe, but an idea of what the look wanted to be, and then use that as your recipe for the whole picture. Yeah, and that was developing while we're shooting. So as a matter of fact, while we dailies would come back that I have no idea why, but the dailies would came back, I, I think, as kind of raw files. You know, when you look at logs, that desaturated blue mess kind of thing. Yeah. That's how dailies came back. Because every shot was a VFX shot, right? Because of the green screen and everything. So we had to do a special title card. So when the, the suits got the dailies, it, you know, it said dailies. And it had a picture of like someone standing there, just a regular photo. And it said, it's going to look something like this. Then we had a photo of the, we didn't know what the final thing was, but looked weird. It was actually on the, the, the videos or dailies they to remind them, um, like, don't panic. It's going to look good later. That's fascinating. <laughs> and I do remember running into some execs up there, like, how's it all going? Like in the second week, and they were just like, great. They just go there to see people, <laughs> naked gladiators running in front around green screen. The dailies look horrible. And, um, but they trusted Zach, you know, who's the Wunder King. And they just trusted him, the golden boy, that it was going to work, you know. That's, yes, it did. Yeah, that, that's amazing because you know that as, as we all know that doesn't happen very often where it's like they'll just like you know put the keys to the kingdom in someone's hands and be like okay yeah i guess it's going to be great you know so it's really amazing i didn't realize that there was just so much of like you know yeah it's we trust you what it's going to look like at the end that it was really you know that that's really interesting i'd never perceived that I, I thought that literally up front and everything you know they fully were fully invested in what they were getting into you know but that that that's an amazing story i didn't realize that um wow and then so then is that the same so i mean for that obviously that's created you know that created such a look and as you said so many people have tried to cheat it and emulate it i mean what you know what's always your thought process when when, when people are trying to you know copy or recreate looks of movies that you've done how do you feel is it that type of thing where you feel like oh okay they're trying to go for something i did or you know what's what's your personal stance you know, when you help create something and then, you know, people just try and attach it to so many things down the road after that. Huh. I, I've never thought that. I never thought where I invented a look or a style or a shot. I think that 300 had a look, but I don't think anyone's been able to duplicate it, but I think they've gone further in some ways. Like, I think they had some TV show that was like that. That didn't look exactly like that, but they're a lot more consistent because we were making it up as we went along. So there are some consistency, inconsistencies in the film if you look at it between vendors and whatnot. Um, but I don't think I've created or invented any look. I think I'm kind of a chameleon where I can adapt to the movie. I don't think like some DPs, you just immediately know like Chico shot this or Deacons or whatever. I don't think my works like that. Right. Because I change it so much depending on the project. Um, I don't know. Some people, some people tell me, and even people not in the business, that they can tell I shot something from a trailer right away. I'm not sure if that's true or not, but but they know. seem to think so. But that's always, yeah. But that's always interesting. People think, you know, and, and that's the thing that you know, you know, as especially as a DP, right? And in, in, in this in this business, sometimes what happens a lot with you know, ladies and gentlemen in your position is sometimes you do get pigeonholed, right? You become the DP that does this type of movie right? The cinematographer who does this type of thing, you know, and it's, it's interesting as you're saying, like, you know, you, that's, that's not at all. You, I assume you want to be, you want to be known as person, like, as you said, being a chameleon, you're like, you can plug into, you know, whatever it is, it doesn't matter. Right. That that's, that's, that's the goal for you as a DP. 
Yeah, I think so. Because again, we talked about before, like the, it's the director's movie. And if he said, I want this to look exactly like, I don't know, Skull Island, then it's probably a mistake, right? Or exactly like, and no director, thank God, has ever said that. I actually did have one director say, I don't want to look like any of those other movies you did before. Okay. And I was, I was like, great. I'm happy to. Although, why did you hire me? <laughs> you know, that was a weird thing. I wasn't hurt. I'm just confused. <laughs> Clearly, someone made you hire me. You know, and sometimes I have had the feeling that, you know, someone made a director hire me. But, um, yeah. It's, it's always what can you contribute? A good story is that when I did Batman versus Superman, I thought, wow, I never thought I would end up doing that. Although, ironically, we did Watchmen before the superhero thing took off, which was deconstructing the whole genre of superhero comics, super meta. Um, but I thought, like, Christopher Nolan and Wally Pfister did this. I can't improve on this. There's no way. But, you know, in pre-production and lots of discussions with myself and with my gaffer, you know, I thought of things to do that they didn't do. Not that they're better, but how I want to do something different. I want to copy them. So sometimes I went the opposite way or did things that even I had never thought of before. And those are the kind of things, you know, again, as long as we can keep the director happy, can I experiment in my own little world that will make me feel happy that I'm contributing something? Because it's kind of a legacy, all these Batman movies, right? Or all these King Kong movies and, and people, cinematographers and directors, you know that have made these. It's kind of, wow, you're on this parallel path but you want to do something different as well to make your own mark in that franchise or in that line so that part's slightly selfish that you want to do something that'll make yourself happy as long as you don't step on anyone else's toes and so we've we've talked a bunch about your relationship with zach i'm curious about your you know your your, your relationship with jj because i know you guys go back for a bit you want to just kind of touch on that a little bit, like how you guys started out. Yeah, because that's a funny story. That was the, the, the thing I told you. I didn't know anyone in the industry. Um, when I met JJ, he was 12 years old. So technically, I guess he was not in the industry. <laughs> but I had a friend in high school, and I lived an hour away from him at least. But a friend of mine, his parents were divorced, and his dad lived, you know, further north an hour and a couple of times he said hey let's get out of town let's you know spend the night up there comes with me and we'll spend the weekend at my house up there and um in um bel-air and jj lived across the street so when we would with my friend we like he was one of the guys i made movies with there's a kid across the street a couple of years younger that would come over and kind of bug us and talk to us and that was JJ. So <laughs> we became friends because he was also nerdy and like ma magic and monsters and all the same things. And um, some it's kind of weird, I guess, these days, like for a 12 year old to say, hey, can I have your phone number? Let's keep in touch. <laughs> but JJ has always been like that. He's always been way beyond his years. And he would call and ask what I'm doing. So and we stayed friends. And when I went to UCLA, I was next to him. We hung out more. So we stayed friends all through the years. I went to film school. He went to you know, Paris, and also to um, Sarah Lawrence, and we just kept in touch. And I started my commercial career, he started writing. Um, he did the TV thing, I was doing the commercials and was happy. Um, and had no interest really in the TV thing that he was doing. 
because he had done at this point Felicity and Alias and all those kind of films. I mean, TV shows that were great. But at one point he called me and said, you know, I know you're not that interested in TV, but I have the script and I think you might be interested in it. And at that point I was, you know, I love commercials and I love the fact that you travel so much and get to at that time play with all the toys and um, you know, they're short and easy and fun. But I kind of got burnt out on 10 years of commercials. And I think uh, on one particular commercial, I was really burnt out and over it because I was trying to help them out with a shot that wasn't going to match on their storyboards. You know, and I said, the camera kind of needs to be here. And they yelled at me and they said, shut up and shoot the boards, basically. <laughs> I need to do something different. And that's the weekend JJ called and sent me the script called Lost. And even before I got the script, like, I don't care what it is. I think, yeah, I'll do this with you if you want me to. <laughs> so um, that's how Lost happened. So that's the first thing we did together after all those years, other than an isolated TV commercial. Um, yeah. That, so then that's how, that's my first TV thing. That's a great, I mean, that's a, you know, a great story in terms of just, you know, how cultivating a friendship and a relationship over time you know, people within the industry, even if you're not working with each other, eventually, you know, the stars align and, and there it is. And I mean, Lost, you know, is definitely considered, you know, especially that season one that you guys did is one of the, you know, seminal TV shows of the last, you know, 15 or so years. So, you know, that, that yeah. that's an incredible feather in the cap. I mean, and an incredible way for you and JJ to, you know, literally step onto the beach together for the first time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That was wild. That was a wild ride. Yeah. So you, you touched on your and JJ's both your, your interest in magic. I know people in the industry know that, you know, you, you know, you, you are quite a talented magician. And has this been something like as you were, I assume this is something as a kid growing up, you're, you're always like honing your magic skills or, you know, how did this come about for you? Um, I don't think I'm that unusual in the, someone who would get a magic set for christmas and i think every kid knows like a few stupid card tricks that he learns from his uncle and but i think that's the same fascination with us right with um filmmaking is so linked to magic or as far as visual things or things that are magical um sense of wonder smoke and mirrors i think it's all kind of related so I've always just been interested in magic and I, I feel like, yeah, I have so many magic friends and there's a different way of thinking because it's about possibilities. What can you do? I mean, think about card tricks. There's just these crazy paper things. And then you can take one. Is this your card? Blah, blah, blah. And you can make your mind explode. And there's just these pieces of paper, you know, so you can imagine what you can do in filmmaking with all the tools, you know, storytelling and acting, production design, everything else. And a lot, what we do is kind of magical. It's just, person standing there talking is not really that much but people feel something down later down the line like they really are part of this world whether it's fantastic world or just people normal people living their life right for some reason movies have that magic and they're visual and audio and that's kind of what magic is so i feel sometimes when you're on the set and you have a problem you can it's all problem solving right so you can say, you know, if he just did this and this, it probably worked. Like, remember, we had this shot and we need some things floating. We thought it'd be very expensive. And we thought, well, we just use a string or 
attach this thing on a piece of glass, which we've all done and move it around, yeah. you know, half the people go, of course I'll work. And other people go, that's never going to work, <laughs> but we've done it and we know it works. That's right. right? So, so things like that. And that, that actually can save, turn to time saving and money savings too in the end. But also the best part is that it's fun Yeah. on set to do that. Yeah. No, it's absolutely fun. And that is an interesting thing because, you know, we find ourselves, you know, on this project that you and I are working on doing some things, you know, practical that on other shows, people will be like, oh, that's just going to be CG. That's just going to be. And there is a, always a sense of awe and wonder, you know, when people see it really happening rather than just be like, oh, that's something that's going to go on post. They're like, oh, wow, that's so cool. And I can see exactly what you're saying. That is such a correlation to magic in itself. It's creating that emotion out of someone where they're just awed for the moment, right? Like cinema has that correlation with magic. And you're absolutely right. Now that you've talked about it, I, the two do go hand in hand in that way. Yeah. 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 Who I was know. it? Like, like you, you saw that, I mean, what's that Scorsese film about you know, Hugo, right? I mean, the first filmmakers were magicians, right? Yes. And that, that is a good point. And you're, and you're absolutely right. Yeah. And Hugo, and it's like, yeah, and, and there is, it's like, you know, cinema is that sense of wonder, right? It is that, it is transporting people, you know? So how we do that on an entertainment value, you know, it is magical in its own way. I mean, as, as you say, it is, you know, it, it is part of that same journey. You know, you take people, you, you offer them an experience and something that you try and see how it resonates and elicits an emotion, you know? And those two are very similar. Those are very similar ilks. You're absolutely correct. You know, and there's one, one thing I want to ask you about for those of you who obviously you see the, uh, on those of you that have a YouTube channel, you'll be able to see this, but I'm going to have to explain it. So tell us something about <laughs> this right here. So for those of you on the podcast, I'm holding up a sticker that says with a cat on it that says, if you shoot the rehearsal, it's not a rehearsal. And this is something that, that obviously a lot of people profess to, but Larry actually has these stickers that we, he shares with us on set and that we've all got, got kind of quite fond of, of the cat, the meme of the cat. If you shoot the rehearsal, it's not a rehearsal. Tell, tell me a little bit of a backstory about this little fancy meme visual right here that I'm sharing in YouTube land. Well, a lot of people recognize this because it's on many camera carts and computers around the world, which I'm very proud of because I'm, that's the only way I guess I could become world famous. <laughs> it makes people smile. I remember when the memes were really big back, I don't know how long ago. And you know, you can, you, you know, I, I thought I need to think of a meme, that'd be funny. But I couldn't think of one because I'm too stupid. That's not my saying. You know, some people have said it for hundreds of years, not hundreds, but long sure. time. And the cat, obviously that cat is not original. That's rehearsal cat, business cat rather. Right been on many other memes and that typeface is amazing but one night I go I'll just put them together I don't know until I think of something original you got to do something and make a sticker so I did that so um if you go on Instagram and go hashtag rehearsal cat you, you can see people have posted the rehearsal cat on various equipment all around the world which just makes me happy and when you're when you're sad along that a long shoot day and you see that cat on the cart for some reason it just makes you smile i think oh i got a lot of flack because i've seen on facebook groups and stuff they post this and because it's funny then quickly as facebook does it descends into this horrible shouting violent argument all caps about sometimes you should shoot the rehearsal 
if you have kids or it's dangerous, you know, it's like, it's a joke. Yeah. Oh it's yeah. A cat with a tie. Clearly. Yeah. People but, and, 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 and I shoot through, yeah. as you know, I sometimes I suggest it. It's just a, something no. to make people smile. It's a and, um, funny thing. And if you go to my website, LarryFong.com, there's a link on how to get that cat. And there's also an image of that on my website. If you just want to download it and make your own sticker. Well, that, I don't make money off that. I, I will tell people, and as as Larry can attest to, I, I somebody about a week ago put this sticker on the back of the coat that I always wear on set, and I'm wearing <laughs> it proudly. And I've been told that they exist in patch form as well, because I do want to get a patch because the sticker is starting to curl up and I lose it off my jacket. Um, but I, but it does make people smile. People look at me with this and people have been taking pictures of me on set and sending it to me with the sticker <laughs> on my back that I wear proudly. I, people shouldn't think that I don't know it's on my back. I think it's quite <laughs> a funny meme as Larry has said. And it is, and it, it is funny because it is, it is a statement we've often had in, in the business. If you shoot the rehearsal, it's not a rehearsal. And a lot of us are fond of just shooting the rehearsal for X, Y, or Z reasons. So it's just, it is something that we all have a lighthearted view of. So on LarryFong.com, um, you can go and see the rehearsal cat and get yourself some stickers of it. And that, that, that's wonderful. I think we should spread joy and, 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 and laughter in the filmmaking community by getting this sticker out into as many sets as possible. I think that'll always be fun. I should point out the humor in that is not in the filmmaking content, it's that it's a linguistic you know, paradox. Yes. I think, I think a lot of people have missed, missed the point of that. Yes, I think, but I think no matter how you look at it, there, there's a lot of humor, but it is it is a linguistic paradox. You're absolutely correct. Um, you're absolutely correct. Um, well, listen, I do want to say, Larry, this has been a wonderful conversation. I do appreciate you spending your time on this oh. holiday weekend to kind of, you know, enlighten and share your backstory because, you know, constantly all we're, we're trying to do is inspire the next generation and, and demystify the process and let them all understand that, you know, baby steps lead to a career. And I think that's something we, you know, we all try and tell the next generation because that's how we've all gotten here, right? Yeah. Well, thank you. I hope another time we can get on one because I know you have group things sometimes and be nice to be in with other DPs and have some collaboration. And I would love to get you on with some other DPs because I, I you know, I do know, you know, I, it's always interesting because we always say this type of thing, like, you know, especially like, you know, there's, there's a few people that singularly do their job, the DP, the director, and like, you know, the first aid, we don't work with other people who do our jobs. Right. So it's always very, it's, it's not always easy to get into a forum with our own contemporaries because, you know, we're, we're so isolated in what we do. Um, but for sure, I would love to have you on when we do one of our DP group sessions. I think it would, it would be a great ingredient for this. Thanks awesome. for coming. Rehearsal Cat says goodbye. I appreciate it, Larry. This is wonderful. Thank you. Thanks Thank so you much. Time, my friend. Enjoy your weekend. Bye-bye. <laughs>